Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Fresno, California. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Just to set the stage here, on Friday, March 12, 2004, Usher's Yeah and Britney Spears' Toxic were both sitting at the top of the music charts. The world had just dodged a Friday the 13th, and the residents of Fresno, California woke up to a warm spring day that was set to reach the mid-70s. As perfectly nostalgic as that seems on the outside, for one family and an entire police department, it was about to be a day that marked history and one of the most horrific murder scenes and subsequent investigations the city had ever seen. Around 2 p.m. that afternoon, police got a 911 call that came out as a child custody dispute. Two women, Sophina and Ruby, had gone to their uncle Marcus Wesson's house to get their children. The home was a small concrete building on the corner of the street, designed for commercial use but being used as a home, and it was a home for what looked like a big extended family. Marcus's nieces, sons, daughters, and grandchildren all lived in the tiny makeshift home, and two of those children belonged to Ruby and Sophina. With the call coming over the radio as a custody dispute, you might think that it was a simple call where police would play mediator between two parties until they'd eventually tell those involved that it's a civil issue. But that's not what happened at all. When police arrived on scene, Ruby and Sophina were frantic. It was clear that whatever was going on in that house was bad, and the police read the energy. They tried to make contact with Marcus, but he quickly went into a back room. CNN reports that the police were able to get two women out of the house as Marcus barricaded himself inside. With Marcus in that room and no signs of anyone else, it was clear that every single person left in that home was barricaded in that room with him. That included his 24-year-old daughter Sabrina and eight minors, all between the ages of 1 and 17. Not wanting to escalate the situation or force a confrontation without knowing more about the circumstances, CNN reports that police decided to make their way out of the house and surround it. The SWAT team, canine, and negotiations were called to the scene and surrounded the house for more than an hour while law enforcement tried to make contact with Marcus and get him to come outside or at the very least let everyone go. Eventually, it seemed to work as Marcus opened the door, but within a millisecond, what felt like the end of a stressful situation became the start of a nightmare. When Marcus walked out, he was covered in blood. This moment in time was both horrifying and confusing. Several reports note that officers on scene hadn't heard anyone scream. They hadn't heard any gunshots or anything to suggest that there had been a struggle in the house while they were trying to coax Marcus out. So it wasn't clear where the blood came from or whose it was. As Marcus calmly surrendered, was handcuffed, and taken to a police car on scene, other officers methodically entered the house, clearing each room and checking for the family members they knew were inside. On their way through the house, CBS reports that they passed a living room wall with 10 hand-carved mahogany coffins stacked against it. As an officer made it to that back room, what he found is something that no amount of training could have ever prepared him for. 
On the floor, he found what is described as a pile of bodies stacked one by one on top of one another. The bodies were covered in blood, intertwined with one another, and tangled within a massive pile of clothes. Because of the way they were placed, he couldn't even tell how many bodies there were. The Fresno Bee reports that the officer did the only thing he could think of in that split second and went to the first body he saw and checked for a pulse. The officer then fell to his knees sobbing as the outlet reports that he repeated the process six or seven times. Every single person in that room was dead. The bodies were still warm to the touch and the blood coming from the pile of bodies hadn't coagulated yet. Whatever happened in that room hadn't happened that long ago. Ruby and Sophina had been waiting outside in horror and cried out in guttural agony when police told them what they'd found. With an unknown number of bodies in the house, it was now a scene unlike anything Fresno County had ever seen. Coroners and medical examiners, several of them, were called in to work overtime as they tried to remove every single body from the room, counting one by one as they were able to untangle them from the bloody clothes and other bodies. News stations from around the area rushed out to the house and photos were taken as body bags were removed by people in plain clothing. Some of the bodies seemed to take up only a fraction of the space in the bags. Before long, the news broke that the official number of victims found in the home was nine. They found the bodies of six females, 24-year-old Sabrina and five minors, ages 17, 8, 7, and two one-year-olds. They also found three males, ages 7, 4, and 1. Each one of them had died from a fatal gunshot wound to the right eye, except for one infant whose gunshot wound was through the left eye. The 22 caliber gun thought to have been used to kill each of the victims was found underneath the body of 24-year-old Sabrina. With that, 57-year-old Marcus Wesson was charged with nine counts of murder. Police were tasked with trying to identify who exactly each victim was, as well as their next of kin, so that they could be notified of the horrific events that had just taken place before they found out from the media. The seemingly blended family that lived in the home was so complicated to understand that they actually wound up doing DNA tests on the victims to try and narrow down who to contact. While medical examiners and detectives worked day and night to determine that, the rest of the detectives on scene went to work trying to piece together what exactly happened in that house and when. And that started with figuring out the victims' times of death. We know that when the bodies were found, they were still warm. The cooling of a body after death is a process called algor mortis, and in working through different formulas like Glassier's equation or Hess's nomogram, medical examiners take into account a person's liver temperature, height, weight, temperature of the atmosphere surrounding the body, clothing, etc., and try to narrow down how long a victim has been deceased prior to being found. While the science of putting a time frame on a death can be a difficult one, the LA Times reports that they could determine that the oldest victim, 24-year-old Sabrina, had died one to two hours after the other victims. This explained a lot, but also created some confusion. 
If Sabrina died one to two hours after the other victims, that could explain why officers on scene for more than an hour never reported hearing any gunshots. However, there were neighbors who, after the fact, reported that they had. While it's not uncommon for bystanders to recall things after the fact, which may or may not line up with the actual timeline of events, officers struggled with both the trauma of the scene and then guilt of not knowing whether or not their decision to wait to enter the home would have changed the outcome. CNN reports that several of them were so distraught that they were put on administrative leave, and at least 17 of them received psychological and spiritual counseling. Another thing that came into question with this new timeline was, if eight of the nine victims had died one to two hours before Sabrina, why did Marcus seem to have no blood on him when the police got there, but walk out with blood all over him? To try and understand any of that, gunshot residue, or GSR tests, were done on both Marcus and Sabrina. Basically, they take a swab of a hand or an arm and sometimes even clothing to see if a person fired a weapon recently. When the media got wind of the fact that Sabrina was being tested for gunshot residue, the question of whether or not this might have been a mass murder-suicide started to spread. Though a spokesperson quickly told the LA Times that it was standard practice, it didn't stop the theories. If this was a mass murder-suicide, was Marcus part of the plan? Was the 10th coffin reserved for him? And more than anything, why? The answer to that question was so convoluted and sinister that even Hollywood couldn't have come up with something so horrific. As the investigation into the murders progressed and officials identified the relatives of the victims, they came to realize that Marcus was both the father and grandfather and father and great uncle of the children killed. His grandchildren were also his children. He had impregnated both his own daughters and nieces and had them all living in his tiny house of horrors. To try and even comprehend a fraction of this, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. In the 1940s and 50s, Marcus Wesson grew up in a strictly religious house in Kentucky. According to the LA Times, his hobbies included singing in the church choir and collecting trains. According to the Fresno Bee, he also liked to take in stray dogs, and as innocent as that seems, a childhood friend told the outlet that Marcus started trying to breed different dogs in order to make strange-looking puppies. Fast forward to 1966, and the New York Daily News reports that Marcus decided to join the army. This was in the middle of the Vietnam War, and he wound up being stationed in Germany for two years as an ambulance driver. Deciding after a couple of years that the army life wasn't for him, he came back to the States, and instead of moving back in with his parents, he wound up moving in with the woman next door. Her name was Rose. She was a decade or so older than Marcus and was a single mother of seven. It seemed like a dream for Rose, who'd been doing the parenting thing all by herself, and before long, she and Marcus wound up having a child of their own. With eight kids in the house, you'd assume that any normal man would be focused on providing for the family or being a positive role model, but that wasn't Marcus's agenda. Instead, the LA Times reports that he focused his attention on one person and one person only, Rose's eight-year-old daughter, Elizabeth. Within five years, Elizabeth was pregnant with Marcus's baby, and when she was only 14, Rose gave 27-year-old Marcus permission to marry her daughter. Marcus and Elizabeth went on to have 10 children of their own. 
At some point during Marcus and Elizabeth's marriage, the New York Daily News reports that one of her sisters joined their family, bringing along her children and raising the total number of people in that household somewhere into the high teens. I'd give you an exact number of people in the household, but I've seen several different ones reported, anywhere between 16 and 19 people. With this new gigantic family of his, he decided that he was Jesus and that Jesus was a vampire. Marcus felt like being vampire Jesus came with a lot of responsibility, and that included raising the children in the home to understand exactly who he was. He was the king, and they were his servants. According to the LA Times, their roles included washing his long dreadlocks, scratching his armpits, reading the Old Testament for hours on end, and sitting through his lengthy sermons. I wish that was the worst of what Marcus put those women and children through, but it was only just the beginning. Incest was a major part of his so-called religion, polygamist incest at that. In the book he wrote called In Light of the Light for Dark, which makes absolutely no sense, the New York Daily Times reports that he stated, In incest, one produces the seed of perfection of oneself. Marcus believed that he had the perfect DNA and that the only way he could preserve the perfection of vampire Jesus was to impregnate his own family, be it his daughters or nieces. The males born into the family were told that the females were being impregnated through artificial insemination, and they were encouraged to leave the home when they turned 18, while the LA Times reports that the women were encouraged to stay for life, and once old enough were made to get small jobs around the community, reporting home every night and handing over their income to Marcus. He had brainwashed the family into thinking he truly was their savior and that they were doing what the savior had asked. Because supporting a family of that size was no easy task, Marcus moved them all over Kingdom Come, sometimes in shacks and tents and other times in small dilapidated houseboats, tugboats, and sailboats that he would dock at various harbors. He actually spent a few months in jail for welfare fraud at one point for not claiming one of those boats on his welfare form. Boats were a pretty common theme when it came to how Marcus seemed to want to house his family. There was one boat in particular that the San Francisco Gate wrote about. Marcus had purchased it, saying he wanted to fix it up and have the family use it to travel across the world. And this is where the coffins come in. According to CBS, he'd bought them from an antique store, I have several questions, years prior to the murders. He told the store owner that he planned to use the wood to repair a houseboat. On the weekends, he'd bring the family to the boat in their school bus, and they'd work on it day in and day out, sometimes adding bedposts as decoration and having the children go to local businesses for running water. For all intents and purposes, everyone the outlet spoke to about the family said that the children all seemed very sweet and willing to help and that Marcus was conversational. Odd, but he never seemed violent. The houseboat dream came to an end, though, when local oyster farmers became concerned with what the San Francisco gate referred to as effluent pollution, which basically means poop in the water, because that weekend houseboat didn't have any bathrooms. Law enforcement deemed the boat unsafe for children, and that was the end of that. 
When it came time to move into the commercial building they wound up calling a home, the Fresno Bee reports that it was actually burned out and needed to be rebuilt. During that process, several of the family members were moved into a tool shed in the backyard. For obvious reasons, the neighbors became concerned and even started a petition to have them removed from the shed. In time, they were, and everyone moved into the house, but according to the outlet, their payments started to bounce around 2003. Moving closer to the time of the murders, Marcus's nieces Sophina and Ruby started to realize that what was going on was wrong. Sophina's abuse had started when she was only 12, with Marcus telling her that he was loving her in order to prepare her for marriage, something he did with the other women and children in the household. Eventually, the Fresno Bee reports that he would ask the girls if they wanted to have children for the Lord, and one by one, Sophina says they agreed. In civil ceremonies, he wound up marrying two of his own daughters and three of his nieces having children with all of them. The first time Sophina tried to leave, Marcus wasn't having it. The outlet reports that he grabbed a knife and asked her if she was ready to go with the Lord because she could go right now. Sophina said that she wasn't ready to go, but that Marcus stabbed her in the chest anyway. I couldn't find much about the extent of her injuries in that instance, but she did survive, and the next time she tried to leave, Ruby decided to go with her. And this time, Marcus let them. But there was a catch. He wanted them to leave their children behind until they were seven or eight as to not rip them apart from the family. Now that their children were of age and catching wind that Marcus and the family were going to have to leave the home and had plans to move out of the state, Ruby and Sophina devised a plan with family members to rescue their children. Leaving had been terrifying enough, but there was additional fear. Ruby stated that her own sister had been recruited by Marcus as one of his soldiers and tasked with tracking down and killing any family members who betrayed them. The two had to be careful and methodical when it came to planning how to get the kids out of the house. According to the Fresno Bee, they decided that someone would distract Marcus and the rest of the family while the others got the children out. Unfortunately, they met with more resistance than they anticipated. It became a violent and chaotic situation between members of the family who had been brainwashed to believe that the outside world was filled with evil and the mothers who knew that the real evil was inside those walls. It ended with that frantic 911 call, the police standoff, and the discovery of nine bodies. The media almost didn't know what to do with the information they were receiving, and neither did anyone else. Surviving members of the Wesson family struggled with their lifelong support of their father and the fact that their siblings' nieces and nephews were all dead. According to the Fresno Bee, Marcus's original wife, Elizabeth, denied that he was ever sexually abusive, while his mother took a more realistic approach. She told the Seattle Times, The Marcus Wesson on TV, I don't recognize. That's not my son. The Marcus Wesson I raised was a brilliant, loving, God-fearing child. In another interview with the Fresno Bee, she stated, If Marcus is guilty, I would feel really disappointed in my country if it didn't make him face the penalty. But I'm a biblical person too, and I don't believe in capital punishment. What I would like for Marcus to do is sit in prison and think about what he's done and read the Bible. I think he will come back. Spiritually, he will come back. Because I want to see my son in heaven someday. 
The Fresno chief of police at the time told CNN, if this case where nine innocent people were killed, including eight children, if this does not qualify for the death sentence, then there is no case that would. More than one dozen sexual offense charges were added to Marcus's nine counts of murder. Within weeks of his arrest, Fox News reports that the jail actually barred Marcus from making or receiving calls or even having visitors after a family member contacted law enforcement worried that surviving members might call him and ask for permission to commit suicide. This only bolstered the idea that this might have been a murder-suicide carried out by 24-year-old Sabrina at the order of Marcus. And as it turns out, it wasn't entirely impossible. According to the Fresno Bee, Marcus's 20-year-old daughter stated that every day since 1995, he repeated the sermon and the order to commit suicide if any government agency tried to come between the family, saying that the police were devils in disguise. Their instructions were to kill the young children and then kill themselves. Sophina echoed that statement, saying that they were brainwashed to commit suicide on command. All nine deaths in the Wesson household were initially ruled a homicide. But according to the outlet, the forensic pathologist consulted with other experts and in doing further research, decided that it was possible that Sabrina's death could in fact have been a suicide. While everyone hoped that the gunshot residue test would clear up who fired the gun, both Marcus and Sabrina's hands tested negative. The gun did have Sabrina's DNA on it, but that's to be expected since it was found under her body and she had been shot with it. Another point made was that the gun didn't have any fingerprints on it, but I spoke to a crime scene investigator who said that that's not uncommon, that depending on the surface of the gun, you won't always be able to find fingerprints. Needless to say, no one knew what to believe. Gunshot residue can be washed off, but Sabrina wouldn't have had a chance to shower or wash her hands after being shot through the eye. Marcus, on the other hand, certainly would have had more of a reasonable opportunity to do so, being as he was the only person who walked out of that house alive. Marcus's trial wasn't one that took years to come to fruition. While we see single homicide cases that take years to make it to a jury, Marcus's trial only took one. While the Fresno Bee reports that Marcus once told Sophina that if the police ever found out about the incest and molestation, he'd plead guilty to protect her and the young women, he did not. And I want to point out in no uncertain terms that while Marcus may have thought he was being mighty fucking noble, he was not. There was no nobility to be had by Marcus at any point in time ever in the history of mankind. This was just one single link in a chain of his manipulation where, as an abuser, he acknowledged that what he was doing was heinous, and if and when the time came for him to face justice for what he'd done, he'd save his victims from the trauma of testifying without actually ending the trauma at its source.
$5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code SAVE to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. In March of 2005, more than 2,000 jurors were summoned. Through an extensive screening process, they chose only 12 and began a three-month-long trial. Marcus's defense was that he wasn't the one who killed the family, that it was Sabrina, therefore he wasn't responsible. No one argued that that wasn't a possibility, not even the prosecution, but the bottom line was that if Sabrina had killed the children and then herself, she had done it at the constant insistence of Marcus's teaching. Therefore, he was responsible whether he pulled the trigger or not. There was some real fear that Marcus wouldn't be held accountable because they couldn't prove that he was the one who fired the gun. And that was only amplified when the jury was sent out for deliberations and it took 15 days to reach a verdict. On June 17, 2005, the world held their breath as charge by charge, Marcus Wesson was found guilty on every single count of murder and every single count of sexual abuse. He was sentenced to death for the murders of his nine family members and an additional 104 years. Marcus is currently sitting on death row in San Quentin, and while no one has been executed in California since 2006, he will spend every moment for the rest of his life in prison and then another 104 years for good measure. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out the highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley and join me there tonight at 8.30 p.m. Eastern where you go live with me and we talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime or for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month, all your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch, and of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. (laughs) 